Welcome to Small Town Mysteries, a show where three longtime friends from Massachusetts tell crazy and heartbreaking true stories filled with the extra flair of small town mystery. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. And I know it matters to nobody except me, but I just did that from memory. That's impressive. I mean, 64, 64 episodes, not too bad. And the first like few didn't even have this intro, so. Yeah, we switched to this intro at like episode 15, so I'm pretty proud of myself. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're back with a new episode on the Circleville Letters. When Christine texted our group chat, which for the record, our group chat is spoopy, podcasty things, in case anyone was wondering, and asked if we'd heard of it, Rachel and I were both like, uh... No, not even a little bit. So I, for one, am very intrigued. I like letters. I think they're interesting. And I think they're always interesting in a true crime case. Yeah, I think this one is right up your alley. I'm so excited. But before I do that, I'm going to toss it over to Rachel, who will be highlighting our missing person for this week. Rach? Today, I'm going to be highlighting Amon LeBlu, who was last seen on July 16th, 2023 in Lancaster, California. She is 13 years old, and that's all the information I could find on her. This is like a whole aside, and I'm sure like other people don't care, but to me, it's a really big deal. I found a lot of our missing kids on missingkids.org, and usually they have a PDF of their missing poster that has so much information about them, their height, their weight, when they were last seen. And now they've updated the website, and it literally just says missing from since their age and their sex oh so it's just strange i'm sure there's a reason behind it but there has to be so if you have any information about where iman leblu might be please contact the los angeles county sheriff's office at 1661-948-8466 and we'll be posting a picture of her on our instagram at small town mysteries pod thanks rachel If you live in that area, please check it out. Every tip matters. Let's get into the primary case for the week. Christine? All right. Today, we are diving deep into the trenches of a true small town mystery. We do have the small town aspects. We got the mystery aspect. And we got a whole bunch of small town gossip and shenanigans. Finally. Shenanigans. I'm here for it. Uh, none of them are really fun, but definitely shenanigans and criminal activity. 64 episodes until we had an actual small town mystery. Nah. Well, I mean, let's let's think about it. How often do I just not cover a small town? Talk for yourself, ma'am. Or we cover a, a case in a small town, but it's not a mystery. It's solved. So I might have to cut this out because I do I do kind of lie to you in the um, this first paragraph, but... Um, This does feel like a Kate episode, like I said, and uh, I'm kind of doing a little bit of script flipping here. I did originally think that no one died in this um, case. However, um, that's not true. Someone does die. So sadly, there there is one death here. I am beaming with pride at how excited you were to have no deaths. I I was pretty excited, to be honest. And And then I read further into it, and then I was like, oh, well... There, there, there goes my entire intro paragraph to this episode. And then also, um, as I was reading further into the town, um, I actually realized that it is is technically a city. <laughs> so I also lied to you again. 
you really leaned into the Kate aspect of this episode. Yeah, and then I just kind of let it all crash and burn. But to be honest with you, and to be fair to myself, I will say that every single blog, every single internet source that I found, other podcasts that I just, I Googled it because it, it is pretty popular with like people covering it in podcasts. And so upon entering it in the Google, every single other source said that it was a small town and they really leaned into, oh, it's, you know, small town, small town gossip. Like, look at what happened in this small town. And then I look on Wikipedia and it's technically a city. And I'm like, okay, so everyone is just lying and I'm the only one who's actually admitting, you know, I'm being honest here with The lone truther. Yeah. Small town gossip. As we know, having made 64 episodes of a podcast about it is a really good hook. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I just, I think that's interesting. Is it like last week we talked about towns that are big by local standards, but would be considered very small towns compared to like normal cities? Is it one of those? It is. It's small and it's in Ohio. So the town is Circleville, Ohio, technically a city, like I said, but it only has around 13,000 people. That's small. It's seven square miles, but Whitman is seven square miles, and it has several thousand more people than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And it's interesting because it's not even like it's that far from Columbus. Yeah. Which is one of the, the largest city in Ohio. So I don't know. In the 70s, which is when this whole case took place, there was around 11,500 people in the town. I mean city, sorry. (laughs) And Circleville itself is known for being the host of the Circleville Pumpkin Show, which is an annual festival that has been going on for the last 120 years. Is that the one with the big pumpkins? Yes. I originally thought this was no big deal. I was like, ah, pumpkin show. But no, I was flabbergasted upon finding out that Mm -hmm. not only is it the biggest festival in the U.S. dedicated to the pumpkin, which is kind of a flex, but attendance has topped 400,000 for the four-day event. Oh, my God. Yes. You sure love pumpkins. Well, we all care about pumpkin spice, but I didn't know everyone cared that much about actual pumpkins. But 400,000 people? That's crazy for such a small town. Okay, so they have a reputation. Yes. And then in general, too, I know I said it was like the largest pumpkin festival in the United States, but I feel like that seems less impressive than saying that it's the sixth largest festival in the U.S. of all festivals. Oh. Oh, that's still kind of crazy. That's yeah. Those are both, to me, pretty crazy statistics, but... I do agree that the sixth biggest festival versus biggest pumpkin festival, um, that that's a good uh, clarification point because yeah. I don't know anything about pumpkin festivals, but festivals in general, I'm a little impressed. Okay, Circleville, we see you. And then, so of course, as Kate mentioned, there is the yearly pumpkin weigh-in um, and the largest to date, I kind of want to have you guys guess how many pounds this pumpkin came in at. It's, Ooh, this it is fun. In, it was in 2014. It's pounds, not not in tons. It's pounds. Okay. Is it enough pounds that it's over a ton? You just have to guess. I'm trying to be logical. <laughs> 600. Kate? I'm leaning towards the 800 range. 
Okay. Um, so I asked Dan about this, and he also was like, 800, 900? Nope. I will reveal it. It was 1,964 pounds. Oh, my God. I'm pretty sure <laughs> almost one ton. That's crazy to me. Um, wait. How how do you even get it there? You need, like, a, a fucking piece of machinery for that. I was going to include a picture, but I didn't want it to um, inform you of the... Of how how much it weighed, but no, but now I want to see it. That's They're massive, neat. yeah. How big does your garden have to? I'm assuming these people have farms. Oh yeah, and it's like the person who got that ha- has like consistently been in the top three for the past like I don't even know like ten or twenty years. So they just grow massive pumpkins. That's what they do. This is like um, some sort of perhaps ill-advised growth hormone used, mm, probably. But um, no, I, I'm just still very much imagining like a backyard garden with a one ton pumpkin in it. And it's like, yep, that's the whole plot of land. Just that one pumpkin. I will say um, if anyone did get within like 100 pounds of the big reveal, I am very impressed. And I will say that you should go DM us at Small Town Mysteries Pod on Instagram and brag about it. Because that's impressive. And then also, if anyone does have an interest in pumpkins, you will be pleased to learn that the festival is completely free. Um, I'm sure it does cost money to like buy pumpkins or pies. And then I think they do have some rides there. But to attend, it is a free festival. So go ahead. Go visit Circleville. And before I have someone in the comments complain that I just spent like a full, I don't know, five minutes going on about pumpkins, I will say it's almost September and therefore I'm attempting to feel autumnal and I would urge anyone who is angry at me to do the same and also attempt to feel autumnal. The end. Also, I guess when we talk autumnal, little mini sneak preview, half semi plug, we're doing another spooky series for spooky Mm -hmm. season. So we are still getting to the point where we're uh, getting the timeline down, figuring out what our episode topics are going to be individually, but we are getting there, which means get ready. Well, moving on from pumpkins and spooky season, sadly. So Rachel and Kate have informed me, like Kate said in the intro, that they're not really familiar with this case, but I think it shares a lot of similar features to our most popular case, which is the Watcher House. If you haven't checked it out, take a listen. Kate did a great job with that episode. One of my favorites. Woo-woo. The ultra brief synopsis of this case is that people in Sarkoville began receiving letters from an anonymous person who threatened to expose their rumored secrets. Ooh. This all began in March of 1977 when certain businesses in Sarkoville, as well as select residents, began to receive mysterious letters that brought up personal information and accusations. These people were accused of embezzlement, domestic violence, affairs, and even murder. Oh, Oh my God. Yes. There were hundreds of letters, like hundreds. Some sources say thousands. Most of the letters were postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, which was around 30 miles north of Circleville. A main target and... The primary person that I will be talking about was a school bus driver by the name of Mary Gillespie. In the letters, Mary, who was married, was accused of having an affair with the married superintendent, Gordon Macy. Scandalous. Mm -hmm. 
And this was one of the first letters that Mary received. It reads, Mrs. Gillespie, stay away from Macy. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. So it's pretty threatening. Yeah, that's very much giving the watcher vibes. Mm -hmm. A little less mysterious. I mean, at least they're directly saying, I have shit on you. Here's what you need to do about it. Watch your back. And unlike the watcher who, not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't listened to it yet, but it was like, my family watches the house. And it's like, what does that mean? The handwriting is really weird. Yeah, the handwriting um, was consistently pretty, pretty strange. Well, I feel like you can tell that this person tried really, really hard to mask their natural handwriting. Yeah, there's um, there's other letters. I don't think I actually put them in here, but the handwriting almost looks weirder in those ones. This is like the most normal one. They also mm-hmm. used a lot of colons. Like they never used periods. They only use colons. I was just going to comment on that and none of them grammatically no. appropriate. Mm-mm. The the spelling, their spelling was uh, no bueno. Also, sorry, I'm like really going full on analyst at this thing right now. Another thing that's really interesting too is most of it's in caps, but all the A's are lowercase. Mm, not all. Not all. Most of them. Most of them. Yeah, most of them. The second portion of the letter has them capitalized, whereas like the first half doesn't. Yeah. That's so weird. I feel like that's really somebody trying to hide that they're educated. Interesting. They're definitely trying to hide something. I'll show you like another. This is more what they looked like, like this handwriting. Do you see that? That one's like borderline Zodiac killer. Yeah, that, that's mostly what they looked like. That looks more like symbols than even letters yeah. to me, the way it's written. Yeah, the, like things are capitalized, things aren't capitalized, things are blocky. The Ys are the same. I feel like because the Ys really stick out to me. Mm. The Ys and also the colons. The Ys are very distinctive, though. I agree. If I were to be investigating, which I'm not, I'm on a podcast talking about this after learning about it for the first time ever, I would look at the Ys. It looks like a goal. Kind of like a fork. I don't think there's a lot of instances of the G, but I know that the person investigating also said the Gs were pretty strange. Oh, yeah. It almost looks like a C in everything. In a lot of them. Huh. Okay. You're right. I do like this case. (laughs) (laughs) In another letter to Mary, the anonymous writer wrote, it's your daughter's turn to pay for what you've done. I shall come out there and put a bullet in that little girl's head. They progressively got very threatening. Yeah. Yeah, that is very... um, That feels like an escalation. Yeah, definitely. And then a later letter to Mary read, Lady, this is your chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs, causes families and homes and marriages to suffer. Ooh. It, like, borderline sounds like his wife. Yeah, like, very angry. So the letters were even sent to elected officials of the town, and they all essentially said that Macy needed to be exposed and he needed to be fired. The letters to Mary did not stop there. They soon were sent to Mary's husband, Ronald Gillespie. One letter in particular stated, Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Macy. You should catch them together and kill them both. 
he doesn't deserve to live. So did he, did this Gordon Macy guy, what did he do beyond having the affair? Because it seems like a lot of these criticisms are very much leveled at him. Like he doesn't deserve to live. Mm -hmm. Was it just because he was also having an affair? The frustrating part is that honestly, Gordon Macy's side is like no information. There's no information about what he did. No, at least verifiable information about his reaction, about his wife, about anything on his side. It's mostly only on Mary's side. So it's really interesting. Um, Also, The affair, Mary denied it vehemently. I'll get into some more information later that might make you think perhaps it was happening, but it's not something that's verified um, that anyone has really confirmed. Other letters to Ron stated that if he didn't do something about the affair, his life would be in danger. For instance, one letter read, we know what kind of car you drive. We know where your kids go to school. Jeez. This is just targeting so many people like on the outs it's weird like on the outskirts of it it really seems like this guy had beef with the macy guy and to get even with that macy guy he was willing to take down anyone he thought could help him yeah that's wow and this was really the talk of the town as you guys can imagine i didn't see a bunch of letters sent to other people, but I know that they did occur. Um, I just wasn't able to get those specific letters, but I know that they were sent to officials. Like I said, I know they were sent to other people regarding their dirty laundry or their supposed dirty laundry, whether or not it was true. So the whole town was talking about this. The whole town was kind of on edge, especially as the letters got more threatening. Ron had to rip up flyers regarding Mary on a pretty regular basis that he saw around town. And this was a pretty hard time, as you can imagine, for Mary, Ron, and their two children. Yeah, I imagine that would be really, really devastating because there's accusations and everyone knows the accusations, whether or not they're true, it doesn't matter. People Mm -hmm. know that's being said about you. And it doesn't matter if it's true. You can deny, deny, deny all you want. And there's still going to be someone who's like, yeah, but you know, but I heard it from so-and-so who's really reliable. And you know, like that rumor is going to persist forever. That's really devastating for a family. And the young kids too. Kids are ruthless. All right. And then here is kind of where everything gets even crazier. So one night in August, 1977, while Mary was on her way to Florida, Ronald Gillespie received a phone call that was allegedly from this anonymous writer. And Ron supposedly got extremely enraged and he told his daughter, who was a little bit older at the time, that he was going to confront the letter writer. So that makes me think that it might have been revealed who it was Mm -hmm. or he might have known the person. Or maybe he just thought he knew. On the phone, yeah. Yeah, maybe after hearing the voice, he was like, oh. Right. So Ron grabbed his gun and he drove away in a pickup truck. But Ron ended up crashing into a tree, and sadly, that crash killed him. Shut up. Whoa. What? Um, in the autopsy, it did say that he was driving over the legal limit. Okay. Yeah, I only saw that in one, one place. But all of his speculation and theories and who he thought it was, that all dies with him at that point. 
Because exactly. it doesn't yep. seem like he told anyone else, like, oh, I'm pretty sure it's so-and-so and I'm going to go confront him. He just said, I'm going to go confront him. Yep. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then underneath Ron's body was the gun that he had taken with him. And it had been fired once. What? <gasps> what? what? And they didn't just, find the shell, I'm assuming. Yeah, I was going to say, they didn't find the shell. So it wasn't fired, obviously, in the car. No. So had he... I don't know. That's the thing. That doesn't make sense. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, but it's entirely possible that he went and found the guy and shot him and then got into the car accident after. Yeah, potentially. I mean, maybe. But then what about this other dead body? Wouldn't people be like... Yeah, right? Oh, then how did so-and-so die? And, like, connect the dots. Like, was there another body found? No. No, there was not. So the coroner ended up ruling this death accidental, though many suspected that he was somehow murdered in all of this. And Ronald was 35 years old at the time of his death. Um, Young. I will get into some information about the coroner later. That's like literally the last thing I have that I just – I had to include because it was so crazy. Oh, boy. So I know. I thought I was done with the case and then I was like, are you kidding? I feel like I want to speculate on what that is, but I also don't want to try and figure it out ahead of time. So I'm going to wait. Don't ruin it. Okay. I'm going to not ruin it for myself. Throughout the entire time that Mary was receiving these threats, she, like I said, vehemently denied having the affair with Macy, although um, after her husband's death, she did admit that they began to see each other. So whether they were seeing each other before or whether the entire situation caused them to become close, who knows? It's a bad look. It is. Yeah. You know? It doesn't reflect well on either of them necessarily. No. Um, And that is when the threats against Mary began to escalate even further. So several years after her husband's death, about six years, in February of 1983, Mary was driving her usual bus route to pick up the children. And while driving, she saw an obscene sign regarding her 13-year-old daughter. Uh, I'm not sure what the sign said, and I don't really want to know. She attempted to pull the sign down, but she noticed that there was twine and a box attached to the sign. And so Mary ended up taking the box home with her, where she finally opened it. And inside of the box was a gun, and it was ready to go off. And so initially when reading this, I was like, oh, so that's just kind of a weird way of saying that the gun was loaded. But then if you look at the picture, there's string attached to the trigger of the gun so that I'm assuming if you, like, open the box in a certain way and picked the gun up, it might fire at you. Holy shit. I was thinking bomb. Mm-mm. Like, oh, there's a box attached to it? That's a bomb. And it's supposed to draw her in. But a gun with string tied around it? Okay. That is so... That's just a lot of a lot of work, right? I feel like we all have many versions of the same questions right now. <laughs> So Mary immediately took the gun to the police who realized pretty fast that that was a booby trap and the gun's serial number was actually traced to someone that Mary knew. Oh my god, who? Paul Freshore. I think that's how you say his last name. I don't recognize the name, but I'm sure she was shocked. Yeah, how did how did she know Paul, you say? Well, he was Mary and Ron's brother-in-law. His wife was Ron's sister. Damn. And they had all been pretty close. Freshor had apparently always believed 
that Ron had been murdered. He was pretty adamant about that, which I think is interesting if he had something to do with it. And he had been really pushing the sheriff's office to look further into Ron's case because he didn't think it was an accident. And so when the police learned of this connection, they interviewed Freshor's wife, who by that time was estranged. They were going through a really bitter divorce at the time of the police interviewing her. And sure enough, Freshor's wife claimed that he was the Circleville letter writer. She stated that she had found a couple of letters torn up around the house. And Freshor was cooperative with the investigation, allowing investigators to search his house and car and even providing them with samples of his handwriting. He did admit that the gun was his, though he was unsure how it ended up in the box and explained that his gun had been stolen several weeks prior to the attempted murder. No, that's a little too convenient. Yeah, not everything falls perfectly in line like that. There was also circumstantial evidence. He had taken the day off work. Um, the same day that the booby trap was discovered, but no one saw Freshor anywhere near the booby trap. A fair amount of witnesses stated that they saw him at his house the day of the attempted murder and that he was having work done on the house. And according to him, that's why he did take the day off. Yeah, but that's assuming he did it personally. He could have paid someone else to set it up or mm -hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, then also having worked on at the house mm -hmm. and having all the workers who are there able to testify that you were at home all day. That's a really strong alibi. Yeah, he did have a pretty strong alibi. But then I still think you set that up as an intentionally strong alibi and have someone else do the dirty work for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so though Paul was never charged with writing the letters, a judge did allow in 39 of his letters to the court since the prosecution had stated that the writing on the booby trap had similarities to the writing in the letters. Um, so that was kind of a break for the prosecution. And despite being adamant about his innocence and the lack of physical evidence, uh, Freshor was convicted of attempted murder. And yeah. at this point, everyone was like, okay, we're done here. You know, the, like the letter writers behind bars, no one has to worry anymore. But there was just one issue. The letters did not stop. Oh. <gasps> what? They did not. They kept coming. And I know you might be thinking, okay, like prisoners can still write letters, you right. know? And while that is true, Freshor was not allowed pens or paper while behind bars. There's a thought that maybe someone else in the prison helped him write the letters. And that could be a possibility. But furthermore, Freshor's warden insisted that that would just be very unlikely and impossible. The sheriff is like, okay, yeah, it's a possibility. But the warden was like, Freshor was kept in isolation. Like he was strip searched. All of his incoming and outgoing mail was inspected. And it wasn't like it was a few letters that were sent while he was in prison. Like there were hundreds that were sent after. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so people around him were kind of pointing toward – his ex-wife, who they said could have put the blame on him, um, especially since she would walk away with money from the divorce if he was in prison. Right. And she was also, at least in this write-up, the first person to be like, it was him, it was him. Yeah. There is like other pretty um, nitty-gritty info about that, which I'll give you like a brief synopsis on, but 
there's a whole theory out there that points to his wife. So during the divorce, the contentious divorce, his wife apparently was like to the children, it's either your dad or me. Like you have to choose. It's one or the other. And so the son did kind of choose the mom, although he apparently did have love for his father. But when forced to pick, he was like, okay, I'm going to go with mom. And Paul did tell people during the time that his gun was stolen, apparently he told people that he believed his son stole the gun from him. Interesting. And the son did sadly end up dying by suicide after a long battle with depression several years after this case took place. Mm. So not really much evidence, Um, just a lot of like circumstantial stuff that happened. There's things that say like, oh, you know, the car that was seen by a witness was the same car that his ex-wife's new boyfriend drove. And there's like certain things that, you know, are kind of like perhaps just coincidences or like really small things. But none of that was ever used. The sheriff's office kind of all didn't think that it was worth investigating that stuff. And so that that's pretty much it with that. And then people who have analyzed his writing, some people believe you know, I'm not entirely sure if it's him. It's hard to believe that it was him writing the letters since it would have been very hard for him to do that in prison, especially since the letters were postmarked, some of them still from Columbus, and he was not in Columbus. Right. But then there's one person who investigates the writing, and she's like positive that Paul is the person who wrote the letters. So... It's kind of up in the air. Paul Freshore himself claimed that he was innocent until the day that he died. He ended up serving 10 years for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. And during this time, Freshore himself received a letter from the Circleville writer. Dang. It stated, Freshore, now when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago when we set him up. They stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. Ha ha. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry I'm laughing, but like, what the heck? The cynic in me wants to be like, yeah, that's good cover. Right. But if it's real. Who knows? Not me. (laughs) So the letters finally stopped in 1994, almost 20 years after they had begun. Who died in 1994? I don't know. Any of them? Not anyone that I saw. Weird. Yeah, but I also wasn't able to get, a, like I said, a ton of information about the wife. Like, I wouldn't have been able to find her birth or Macy or Macy's wife. I couldn't even get a name. So. There's gaps in the knowledge. Yeah. I, I would be very curious about more of, like, Macy's side of things. Because especially since the letters were so seemingly directed at him. Like, very much I mean, so. and Mary, but there was definitely a solid hatred for him. She was almost, like, collateral. Yeah. Like, you happen to be the woman he's having an affair with, but really have a problem with him right now. So around the same time that Freshore was released from prison is when the letters did stop. So that's something that's interesting. I don't know. That could have just been the person just timed it right. Yeah, I don't know. They knew that they were getting out and they're like, oh, this is like... Because I really feel like somebody 
obviously thought all this out. Hmm. And it was just like a whole big game. Like it was a board game, you know? Or chess yeah. game. They definitely seem to like to incite fear in people. So he ended up dying June 28th, 2012 at the age of 70. Um, and then this is just the last part I have. It's some insane information that I couldn't help but share. So the coroner, the doctor who ruled Ron's death accidental, he was actually accused of child molestation by the Circleville writer. He was one of the people oh. that the writer oh my discussed. Oh. oh, child molester? Jesus. No one is safe. And by 1993, he was charged with 12 counts of gross immorality sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure. 17 women had come forward by that point. However, a medical board attorney, as of 2023, has received complaints from around 150 victims. Oh, my God. What the fuck? Oh, my God. Mm. So I guess it might not have even really been insider info. Um, from mm-hmm. the writer because with that many victims, right? I'm sure some people knew. I mean, like I was reading about some of these victim statements, and it's it was horrible. Like there were sisters who had the same doctor, and they didn't discover until like 20 years later. One of them was like, "Oh, I, I was actually abused by our doctor," and then the other one was like, "Me too." And it was really like one of those moments where like oh people gosh. had sleepovers in the town. And they would talk about the abuse that they had endured. Like, it was rampant. Yeah. It was horrible. So, kind of, I I say sadly, he died in 2007 at the age of 86, and he was never criminally charged. And that's why I think it that's so sad. Because he lived Fuck a long life, and he got away with shit oh. he never should have gotten away with. He got to die of old age. Especially because if the complaints were only around 150... How many more that people did not come forward? Yeah. It's like the, the stats on how many people come forward about assault like that and how many people report versus how many convictions there are, it just, the percentages just go down and down and down and down and down. So that's crazy just to think of how many other women there probably were. Horrible. No, I'm pissed. Sorry. I know. I like- I'm sorry. I, I had to include it because I was like going through and then I saw something. It was just I because the last thing I did was go on Reddit to look about some of the theories and stuff. Of course. And so when I went on there, it was like, oh, just an, another thing to note about this case is like the coroner from the case that ruled his death accidental, like actually had this horrible um, history. And I was like, okay, well, is that true? And sure enough, it's like it's actually on reputable news sources. That's crazy. But yeah, that is my case. Sadly, I don't think we're ever going to actually truly know who wrote the letters. It likely could have been Paul Freshor, but again, who knows? We're not really sure about that. Especially since Paul's died and I'm assuming the other major players are dying yeah yeah as they age as is natural but then you you run out of people who know the truth yeah until eventually the truth dies too damn christine that was a whirlwind (laughs) i know the booby trap and everything when i first got into the case i was like okay it's just gonna be like a a, a threatening letter and then i was like geez louise 
Yeah, the, that's a whole new level. Wow, what a case. It was just like punch after punch after punch after punch. No relenting on that one. Um, thank you. Dang. Yeah, thank you're you welcome. for that. <laughs> I feel like this is a case you find and then you're like all of a sudden it's like three in the morning and you're still like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> you I feel what my case is. So you've done a really great job of being me for an episode. I'm very I know this really you. does give Kate vibes. Well, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of Small Town Mysteries. And keep tuning in as we will have information soon on our Instagram account at Small Town Mysteries Pod with some hints about our spooky season series for this year. So if you want to make your guesses, keep an eye out on that. We'll see uh, if anyone gets what it is. Also, we would love to know your guesses on the weight of the pumpkin in pounds. Mm-hmm. So yes, please. Pod, if you manage to do better than Rachel and I, which is not hard to do. Come brag to us. We love when people brag to us. That's not even a joke. I am immensely <laughs> proud of every single one of the listeners of this podcast ever. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Come spiral with us next week. Bye. Bye. That was a really good one.